0: Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
1: The Crisis Next Door. A weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world. With host, Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. If you've seen pictures or have been fortunate enough to see it in person... Kashmir offers unparalleled natural beauty, soaring Himalayan peaks, deep verdant valleys. But the idyllic setting is often shattered with artillery barrages and sputtering machine gun fire, as India and Pakistan continue a standoff that began over Kashmir going back to 1947, when both countries gained their independence. The death toll over the years is estimated somewhere between 50 and 100,000 people, as the two countries frequently spar over the line of control, a 435-mile border separating Indian and Pakistani-controlled parts of Kashmir. It's worth mentioning that China also controls a smaller portion of Kashmir near its border. It's even more important to point out that India and Pakistan are armed with nukes, and Kashmir has often been pointed out as potentially the world's most dangerous nuclear flashpoint. Joining the crisis next door to talk about Kashmir is Karthikeya Singh, Deputy Director of the Wadwani Chair in U.S.-India Policy Studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Dr. Singh has a particular focus on climate change and energy policy and innovation. Dr. Singh, thank you for joining me today on The Crisis Next Door.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Kashmir seems like the never-ending struggle, and there has been a significant increase in violence over the past two years. With Pakistan's foreign ministry claiming 3,000 ceasefire violations by Indian forces since 2017 and India's foreign ministry accusing Pakistani forces of committing over 1,000 ceasefire violations so far in 2018. But the two countries agreed last month to abide by a 2003 ceasefire in Kashmir. Considering the original ceasefire has been frequently violated, should we have any hope for the current one taking hold?
0: Well, um, yeah, I think uh, you're right that the uh, the checkered past of, of the conflict um, and certainly the violation of, of ceasefire um on, on all sides, um, does not give us too much hope uh for what's uh you know, whether or not the ceasefire will hold. Um, I should take a step back and and, and mention that uh, you've, you've rightly used uh, you know the word Kashmir because the valley of Kashmir is certainly a big portion of the dispute, but the the valley lies within the state of Jammu and Kashmir, uh, which is uh, the the proper name of the state, and I think that that is part of the challenge uh, in trying to unpack. the complex relationships between the peoples and cultures um, of the state. And, um, and there are also other regions of Jammu and Kashmir, including uh, the northeastern region of Ladakh. And if you were to use Jammu and Kashmir, um, uh, proper, including uh, the parts of, of the state that lie within Pakistan, uh, there's also gilgit Baltistan. So uh, there's actually various different um, parts of the state that get kind of left out of the equation and the dialogue in trying to resolve this conflict that I think um, need to be addressed uh, when we're um, addressing the region and the conflict um but you're right i mean i think um the ceasefire is probably likely to not hold given the the tense situation within the valley of kashmir currently um you know more recently there is a prominent journalist uh, who was murdered and i believe it's been uncovered that um uh, the militant group luxury taiba was responsible for him being gunned down um in Srinagar just uh, not too long ago and i think that's Um, only going to add to the tensions because he was um, loved and hated by both sides. And by that, I mean, um, you know, those who favor separatism, those who favor being with India or with Pakistan. I think he had something to offer uh, all sides. And I think his loss uh, is is quite tragic and is only going to add further tensions in the valley.
1: Certainly does not help when it comes to dialogue. And the U.N. Human Rights Office recently released a 49-page report detailing human rights violations on both sides of the line of control. India's Chief General of the Army criticized the report, saying the Indian Army's human rights record is above board. Do you think the timing of this report could be a problem for bringing India and Pakistan together in dialogue?
0: Yeah, I think the timing of the report, uh, you know, given I think the timing of the report is what it is. Um, it's just unfortunate uh, I mean, I, probably a report like that did need to be released uh, just to sort of evaluate where we are in terms of human rights violations across the region. Um, it's true that the report is a little bit more heavy handed um, on the Indian side, um, you know, in terms of the claims that it makes of the um, uh, of the rights violations. Uh, on the Pakistani side, also, there are some violations that are different in nature, um, and um, there's a, there's a good conversation to be had here about whether or not the two sides can use that as a springboard to actually, uh, lower tensions or if it only further, you know, fans the fires of, of the conflict. And I think, um, unfortunately it's, it's looking like it's gonna go in, you know, the direction of the latter, especially if, um, and there's been some, you know, thought and, and writings out there uh, in the etherverse uh, sort of suggesting that maybe Pakistan should own up to its side because the violations cited within the report for it are much different than the Indian side. And if that's the case, then, um, you know, the, the conflict, the dialogue could be changed, but it does not look like the Pakistani side is, is really owning up to uh, the, uh, what the report is saying either.
1: There's not been a whole lot of goodwill between Pakistan and India over the years, although earlier this year, perhaps in a a start to trying to get some sort of dialogue going, Pakistan invited Indian officials to attend Pakistan Day Parade in Islamabad in March. That was the first time ever that occurred. India also proposing to send a team of doctors to visit Pakistan and examine mentally challenged prisoners. Uh, Is there any hope that this is a kind of thaw, perhaps in relations that moves like this could lead to greater talks in the future?
0: I think people-to-people ties have already have, have always been used as a way um, to increase goodwill or inject uh, goodwill into the into the process um, and and to again give some um, uh, to bring Kashmiris uh, specifically from the valley into the center of the dialogue and and I think these gestures are needed um i think uh, they can be a step in the right direction you know transportation links were opened up and have been severed in the past to allow for exchange of people to allow uh, allow for economic exchanges between the two sides of Kashmir that have been partitioned all of these mechanisms are uh, good confidence-building measures to diffusing the tensions. However, when uh, we see increased infiltration of militant activity from across the border, from Pakistan into India, as India alleges, and, uh, and just the general heightened conflict that rises in the summertime, that kind of uh, comes down on it, and on, uh, that hinders uh, the cross-border movement of goods and people. Um, and so that's the unfortunate thing, is that we hope that these things uh, don't really cancel each other out Um, But yes, such such dialogue, such exchanges are a good sign.
1: India's Army Vice Chief recently told the Indian Parliament that nearly 70% of the Army's equipment is vintage and that the Air Force and Navy face similar problems. And it's well believed that Pakistan is believed to be in even worse shape. Are there fears that there could be an arms race? And even if there was an arms race, is that something that Pakistan could even keep up with and and that always turns to the attention of nuclear weapons is that somewhere where Pakistan would be forced to go if they actually did get involved in an arms race with India
0: you know, I think uh, this arms race question has also been out there for for quite some time, and there has been a bit of rivalry of uh, wanting to make sure that each side is well equipped to handle the other. I think it's clear that India does have the upper advantage on the arms side, um, but you have to keep in mind that this is a uh, has become more of an internationalized conflict with the role of China in the region. China, as you as you rightly pointed out, does. Uh, control some of the land of Jammu and Kashmir uh, on the northeastern side, the the portion of the state called Aksai Chin by China, uh, claimed by uh, India, of course, uh, as part of the Ladakh region. Um, And they are sort of an all-weather friend to to Pakistan and are helping develop quite a large infrastructure project that cuts through uh, the Pakistani-administered portion of Jammu and Kashmir. This is the uh, China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, and it is believed that they are um, going to be there to support Pakistan. So I I don't think nuclear is really an option. It's just a matter of uh, alliances and which countries choose to support which side uh, should tensions escalate. And for India, that's a really um, troubling—it's quite troubling— because India does share quite a large border uh, with China and does, did go to war with China um, in the mid-60s. And, it, um, and uh, there are some disputed territories with China on India's northeast side in uh, China claiming the Indian state of Arunachal Pradesh, uh, claiming that it is part of South Tibet. Um, And as you well know, the Dalai Lama and the Tibetan government in exile sits in India. So that is a bone of contention for the Chinese. So um, this is quite, this is kind of a global, uh, Kashmir is being drawn into a a regional power dynamic uh, between uh, multiple powers.
1: I'd be curious to think if possibly that this could benefit Jammu, Kashmir, uh, China, obviously investing a ton of money into the Pakistan economic corridor, $46 billion, of highways, dams, hydropower projects, all sorts of infrastructure improvements. Beijing obviously wants to see this go through, and if you've got uh, fighting taking place in this area, that that's going to prevent that from happening. Uh, might this possibly bring Beijing and New Delhi closer together and, and possibly settle the Jammu-Kashmir difference between India and Pakistan?
0: I believe a Chinese envoy did... Um, did offer that up as one of the solutions uh, to the conflict, and was even was even uh, quoted as um, as saying that they would be willing to change the name of the China Pakistan Economic Corridor uh, so that India would uh, would have greater buy-in. Um, I think the problem here is that with um, the hostilities between India and China not just being in Jammu and Kashmir but also spanning to India's northeast. Border with China, and also uh, in the Indian Ocean, um, there there is suspicion on the Indian side uh, as to how much uh, to really uh, give a blessing to uh, to this project. And certainly, when the dispute has not been resolved, when India claims all of Jammu and Kashmir, um, and and is, sort of was agreed to under the UN uh, when, after the initial war. Um, between India and Pakistan, I think it having such large infrastructure footprints, I think is a before having the conflict resolved. Uh, is kind of a non-starter, uh, but it's true that the economic dividends of having such large infrastructure development in the region could be quite, quite large. I mean, Jammu and Kashmir sits um, as a gateway to Central Asia, and should the entire state have access to better infrastructure, connecting it not only, um, you know, to Central Asia but also the rest of South Asia, um, the people could actually see some major economic dividends. Of course, there are some external externalities that would come with it, but. Um, I don't see that uh, as something the Indian side is is going to support.
1: You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. We're talking about Kashmir with Karthikeya Singh, Deputy Director of the Wadwani Chair in U.S.-India Policy Studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. You have a focus on climate change, renewable energy, are there any benefits to come from renewable energy for the southeastern Asian region that could come from Jammu and Kashmir?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Jammu and Kashmir um, has a tremendous potential for for solar, um, given the high altitude um, uh, of the of the region, particularly in Ladakh. Uh, and uh, you know, again, it's a matter of evacuating that power. But there's tremendous potential for the state of Jammu and Kashmir um, to provide to uh, meet India's Uh, 100 uh, gigawatt solar power target. Um, I believe the state of Jammu and Kashmir um, currently has about, let me see, it has met... Uh, I'm trying to pull this up here. Uh, I have it here in front of me. It's only met a very small fraction of the 1.1 gigawatt uh, solar target that it has under the 100 gigawatt target that the Indian central government has laid out. So there's a lot of scope to develop that. And I imagine, um, you know, if if some of the conflict uh, died down, that some of these projects could actually be developed uh, hydro potential is tremendous in the state, but remember that the Indus water treaties between India and Pakistan prevent um, a significant portion of the resources from being developed um, so that's actually one of the things that the state government of Jammu and Kashmir in the past had said was uh, hindering the economic development of the state uh, is this bilateral treaty with uh, the between India and Pakistan to to actually harness the power of the rivers from uh, coming out of the of the state uh, but yes, there's tremendous renewable energy potential in the state. Uh, to be tapped. Um, the power sector in the state, unfortunately, is quite beleaguered. Um, it is uh, requiring tremendous amounts of investment. Uh, the technical and commercial losses, and by that I mean how much is lost to theft or just not being billed by the state utilities is quite high, uh, upwards of 50%. And when you have uh, a, a utility system in a state that's so broken in many ways, um, it, it requires a lot of investment. It requires a lot of efficiency improvements and new policies and measures to really uh, shore it up before you can actually uh, develop new power projects that then will actually be paid for by the consumers in the state.
1: Is the investment basically on hold uh, until this conflict is resolved Are uh, investors not wanting to go near it and, uh, while fighting is still going on?
0: Yeah, I think it doesn't make it as attractive. Um, you know, and more recently, now the state has, um, has come under governor's rule. So just in the last, uh, week or two, actually, the, um, the coalition government, uh, in, in Jammu and Kashmir, uh, which was actually the first time that the, the Bharatiya Janata Party, which is Prime Minister Modi's party, uh, came into power in the state in a coalition government, uh, with the PDP, uh, um, party, uh, which is more centrist, uh, and, um, and that coalition actually fell apart, uh, just a couple weeks ago. And, um, and this has opened the door to governor's rule, which means direct rule by the central government of India. Um, and I think this is the eighth time that this has happened in the state. And, and, um, and that's troubling to investors. I mean, on one hand, it does mean that there's less politics. Uh, of the state government to get in the way of actual development. But this fluctuation um, and instability of the state government um, does not uh, bode well um, in terms of investor confidence in the state.
1: Pakistan has general elections in August of this year. India's general elections are next year. Will Jammu Kashmir be a key focus for elections in both countries?
0: Uh, Jammu and Kashmir. I'm, I'm sure it's always a question um, that comes up in the elections: is what is a political, uh, what is a political party, uh, what is a particular political party's stance on the Kashmir issue, the Jammu and Kashmir issue? Um, and in this case, the Bharatiya Janata Party, I think, um, you know, has broken away from the coalition, uh, and the party president is quoted as saying, as the reason they backed out from it is because there was uneven uh, development um, of the other regions and um, Of the state, so as I mentioned, Ladakh, which is largely a Buddhist uh, stronghold in the state, uh, and Jammu, which is, you know, if you were to break it down, kind of in terms of religious uh, groups and where they, which regions in which they dominate, Jammu is, uh, is. uh, predominantly Hindu, and, and the Valley of Kashmir, which is the most populous, is largely Muslim. And so um, there, there's uh, some tension around too much preference being given to the Valley, where the majority of the people do live. Um, and I think uh, they're hoping that um, in the lead up to the, to the national elections, that they can secure lower house seats um, uh, for the BJP from the other regions for sure, as they did Uh, in in the elections in 2014. Now, in Pakistan, I am sure that Kashmir is going to play quite a central role uh, in their elections. But there's a range of other issues uh, unfolding in Pakistan, including many economic issues, that I'm sure the electorate there is going to be quite concerned about.
1: The world has always feared about a potential nuclear confrontation between Pakistan and India over Jammu Kashmir. So far, it's not gotten there. And do you think that both countries are content with low-level conventional warfare in the mountains,
0: yeah, I, I think that both sides, you know, the, the when you look at the map of South Asia, I think any nuclear activity uh, by either side would have a tremendous, you know, the fallout from nuclear radiation would, would span both sides of the border. So I think nobody uh, in their right mind is really thinking of a nuclear option. Um, I think cross-border skirmishes are probably more likely. Um, I Content is an interesting word to use. I mean, I think nobody wants there to be, uh, you know, continued uh, armed conflict. Um, but I think it's not I, I don't anticipate it going nuclear anytime soon.
1: Hard to undo 70 years of conflict, isn't it? It's, it doesn't seem like there's really anything on the near horizon that will solve this crisis.
0: Well, you know, there was a lot of promise and hope um, when Prime Minister Narendra Modi was elected back in 2014. Um and he invited, he did something rather unique at that time. He invited all the heads of state of the South Asian um, nations, the neighbor neighboring nations, to his inauguration, to his swearing in. And all of them came, uh, including the then prime minister of Pakistan, Nawaz Sharif. Um, and that was a really bold move. And it sort of, um, you know, things were on an upswing from the start um, and I think the Prime Minister of India had hoped to uh, to have a neighborhood first policy, where you can only have a strong India if you have uh, strong neighboring countries. And there was a lot of goodwill on both sides, and the need, uh, you know, to address the alleviation of poverty uh, on both sides, because both countries are, are have a lot of poverty. And uh, if they were to just focus on how they can alleviate this, if they can focus on areas of cooperation, perhaps energy, um, you know, because both sides need it, and, and there are avenues to trade that. Uh, then you know there could be ways of diffusing the tension uh, in the way that and, you know China has done with many other uh countries in the world um, and uh, unfortunately that 's not the direction that things went. Um, the question is in after these elections, if the mandate uh, being sort of renewed perhaps for Prime Minister Modi um, and for uh, whoever the new prime minister is in Pakistan, if they can try to uh, you know hit the reset button and try something new
1: let 's hope that goodwill takes hold. The people of Jammu and Kashmir can certainly use that. We've been joined by K. S. Singh, Deputy Director of the Wadwani Chair in U.S.-India Policy Studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Dr. Singh, thank you for joining me today.
0: Thanks for having me again.
1: I'm Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'll see you next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com.